Any better? Uh, hey, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 14 this morning. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture there. Fifth book in the Bible, fairly easy to find. Deuteronomy 14. If you're visiting, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. I'm pretty pumped to preach this morning. Really enjoyed prep this week, praying through the passage, and feel like God cared for me this week. And Lord willing, you'll have the same experience by God um, before you leave today. Uh, the people on the left side are blinded over here, John. If you can. Sorry, can't help but notice. Uh, a part, if, hey, if you're a guest, we want you to feel quickly at home. And um, a part of feeling at home and getting connected a, as a person to a church is giving financially. Um, in fact, I would say this for any member, regular attender, guest. Uh, Jesus said, where your treasure is, where you're investing, there your heart is. So to be connected to the people of God, the purposes of God, I would go so far as to say the person of God means to invest financially in what God has invested in, what he's doing. And part of that has to do with the local church. So we'd encourage you to give. 90% of us give online. It's quick and easy to do. It's not simply a part of worship Sundays. It's a part of a life of worship. And so we'd encourage you to be giving. If you came ready to give this morning um, and aren't giving online, you can drop it in the little black boxes that are in the foyer on your way out. I'm in Deuteronomy 14 this morning. I'm going to read 21 verses. If you have a pen or pencil handy, I'm going to encourage you to circle a couple words. My Bible's all marked up. I like to mark a little bit, so I'll just point those out as we go. You are the children of the Lord your God. I'd circle children. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. I'd circle holy. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. I'd circle chosen. We're God's kiddos. We're holy as a result because he's chosen us. We're his treasured possession. All right. Now, the balance of the passage gets fairly opaque, uh, but bear with me, okay? Do not, any do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. However, of those that chew the cud or that have a divided hoof, you may not eat the camel, the rabbit, or the hyrax. Although they chew the cud, they do not have a divided hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. The pig is also unclean. Although it has a divided hoof, it does not chew the cud. You're not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. All of the creatures living in the water, you may eat any that has fins and scales, but anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat. For, it, for you, it is unclean. You may eat any bird, any clean bird, but these you may not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, the black kite, any kind of falcon, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the cormorant, the stork, any kind of heron, the hopi, and the bat. All flying insects are unclean to you. Do not eat them. 
But any winged creature that is clean, you may eat. Do not eat anything you find already dead. You may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it, or you may sell it to any, of, to any other foreigner. But you are the people holy to the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What are we to make of this? If you're joining us for the first time, we're moving through Deuteronomy fairly slowly. We're actually going to pick up our pace. Lord willing, we'll be done before Advent begins. Deuteronomy is the account of God preparing Israel to enter the promised land. They had been eating manna in the wilderness for the last 40 years. Manna was a bread-like wafer that they would wake to every morning and they'd find it covering the earth. They'd go out and collect it along with quail. So God provided for them in the wilderness because they couldn't provide for themselves manna and quail daily, bread and meat. When they enter the promised land though, in this book, This book is written to Israel as they're about to enter the promised land. They're standing at the Jordan River. They're about to cross over. When they get into the promised land, there'll be no more manna and there'll be no more quail. They're going to, so God's giving them directions. Don't eat this, but eat this. Don't don't eat the unclean, eat what's clean. And he's dividing that up, helping them understand. And according to verses 1, 2, and 21, the reason Israel was to observe these unique food laws had to do with three things. It's what I encouraged you to circle or underline. Number one, their relationship to God. They're God's children. You are the children of the Lord your God. Their status as holy. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And then he he goes into all the food, the kosher food laws. And God's sovereign choice of them, that is calling them to himself. Out of, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession, and the writer says, out of all the nations on the earth, he chose you. He, he brought you out. Now, interesting, each of these realities applies to those in the room this morning that are trusting in Christ as Savior. We are holy, according to John 1.12, and I notated it there on the slide. We're holy. We're considered God's children. We're a part of God's family, this familial status. We're his kids. We're also considered holy. That is called to him, separated from the world. That's what it means to be holy, to be separated from. He's called us to himself. We're to live holy, Peter writes, 1 Peter 15 and 16. And then God has sovereignly chosen us. We haven't chosen him. If we have an interest in him, it's because he's awakened us to that. He's called us to himself to be his treasured possession. So, if, if those were the, the realities around uh, that fueled the kosher fu- food laws, and they're true for us today, We're God's children, we're holy, we're his treasured possession, chosen by him, then why don't we eat kosher? Kosher simply means appropriate or deemed fit for eating. What has changed for the people of God that we no longer distinguish between clean and unclean foods? Well, there's a fascinating story in Acts chapter 10 that details the changes that have taken place, and I want to move through it today. Acts is in the New Testament. Ironically, it's the fifth book 
in the Bible, uh, fifth book in the New Testament as well. And so you could turn there if you wanted to follow along. It's the story of the first Gentile convert. To be a Gentile, simply to say this person was not a Jew, not an Israelite. In other words, was not in the habit of observing the food laws. Uh, this Gentile who's going to convert to begin trusting in Christ, his name's Cornelius, and he was a Roman centurion, which is to say he was the commander of at least 100 troops. He was a Roman soldier in command of at least 100 troops. We know a lot about how centurions dressed because of archaeological finds. There's a picture here of um, Cornelius, not actually Cornelius, but what he would have looked like in full battle regalia, as well as at the top of the map, Google it, right, Caesarea, his hometown. And I've drawn a Google Maps road route from Jerusalem through Jaffa, which is on the coast, up to Caesarea. So Caesarea is about 75 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So this is a real person in a real town. You can still go there today. All right. Interestingly, Cornelius is presented in a very positive light. Although a trained soldier and a representative of Rome, who were the occupying forces of Jerusalem, of, of Israel, of Judea, right? They were occupying it. The Jews weren't, war, generally speaking, warm to Romans. He's a Roman soldier. He's a Gentile outside uh, the Israelite community. He's spoken of very warmly here. He's described as devout. So he's actually, he's described as uh, devout would mean highly moral. So if you're not yet trusting in Christ as Savior, if you're here checking out the claims of Christ and you fall in the category of highly moral, devout, religious, spiritually interested, then Cornelius is somebody you could identify with. That's who he is, highly moral, right? The county, DuPage County, is full of folks that are highly moral, uh, highly credentialed, well-meaning, trying to raise their kiddos and do the right thing. That's Cornelius. In fact, his behaviors, his devout behaviors of giving money generously, I opened this morning on the platform with an encouragement to give. You'll note here, that the angel that appears to Cornelius says, hey, God has noted that you're a generous giver. This guy's outside of Israel and gets an angelic visit, and the angel's aware of his giving habits. Take note. And his prayer habits. In fact, it's probably during one of these times of prayer that Cornelius was visited by this angel. So I'm going to begin in verse 3. Acts chapter 10. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, called him by name. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Again, if you're a highly moral person who's not yet trusting in Christ, this is good news. Your prayers are heard by God. Your behavior is seen by God. There's also a warning here, and I'll get to that. Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a moral offering before God. Verse 5, now send men to Joppa, you remember the map, to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. It's a port city, Joppa is. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier. So he's got this buddy who's devout as well. 
another soldier, who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa to go find Peter. So ancient Joppa, you, here's the map again, is called, in modern day is called Jaffa. They swap the, the P's for F's. It's only about 30 miles south of Caesarea, so he sends these attendants 30 miles south to find Simon the Tanner's house. In fact, if you go to Jaffa today, this port city on the Mediterranean Sea in Israel, you can visit the house that they say is Simon the Tanner's house. Here's a couple pictures of it. There's a plaque there on the wall, right? You can take a tour. So while the soldiers are en route to find Peter in the city of Joppa, we're told in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter is praying as well. He'd gone up on the roof to get away from folks and to pray. And so here it is in Acts chapter 10, verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey, uh, Cornelius' uh, dispatch of attendants are on their journey south, and they're approaching the city of Joppa, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. Uh, this is encouraging to me because I can easily get distracted in prayer, particularly if I'm hungry. So he became hungry, wanted something to eat. While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Not exactly sure what that is. I would say it's neither fully asleep uh, nor fully awake. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals. So now we, we should have Deuteronomy 14, what was just read for us in our mind. It contained all types, kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds, lots of animals. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter. You're hungry, in other words. So he's praying. This is fascinating. He's praying gets distracted by his hunger, tells someone, make me something to eat. It's getting prepared for him. He falls into a trance. He's still praying. God, aware of his prayers, aware of his hunger, this sheet descends and says, get up. Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet's taken back up to heaven. All right, so we aren't told what was in the sheet, the exact animals. We know enough to know that Peter looked into the sheet and saw some animals that had been designated in Deuteronomy 14 as unclean, and he's not going to go near them. He's not going to go near them. No, surely not, Lord, even though, even though it's God giving him the vision, God answering his prayer, God meeting with him, he resists God's directive. I've had those moments where I'm begging God, show up, God answer. He does, and I say, no, I don't want that. Something else. Give me something else. This smacks is really familiar to me. So why is he resistant to an answer from prayer? He wants so bad to be visited by God. We all do. Why is he resistant? Well, remember, remember what it meant. The kosher food laws meant to the people of Israel. It meant they were God's kids. He's not going to do anything to undermine that. It meant he was holy. It was a part of the indication to the world that he was holy, set apart by God's choosing, that he was God's uh, treasured possession, Deuteronomy 2, uh, 14, 2. So he's not going to do anything to undermine that. The food laws were designed by God to be this ever-present reminder to Israel 
of who they were. And he's not going to undermine that. Holy means to be set apart. And it's actually, um, somewhat ironically, it's actually these food laws brought a lot of persecution on Israel. And if you remember what junior high is like, right? Junior high is if, any, if you stand out at all, you get picked on. Well, Israel stood out because of these food laws. It made them strange in the broader culture of the ancient Near East. And it's actually part of the factor of persecutions and pogroms getting chased out of areas. So Peter is still operating under this understanding, even though he's a Christian, a Jewish man following the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, he's under the assumption that the Old Testament food laws were to be a part of the lives of those who are trusting in Jesus for salvation. And so he's left scratching his head somewhat. Why would God encourage me to eat what's unclean? Meanwhile, the messengers from Cornelius are knocking at the door. Verse 17, while Peter's wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, I'm picturing wrought iron, hey, is there a guy in there named Peter? Through a courtyard, right? While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs, don't hesitate to go with them, for I've sent them. So he's had the sheet vision of the unclean animals, and now he's given a directive, go with these guys. And some of them are, at least one of them is a Roman soldier, a devout buddy of Cornelius's, who's come to fetch him and take him back 30 miles north to Caesarea. Peter gets up, he goes to Caesarea. Next scene is he's in the house of Cornelius, and Cornelius has assembled everybody he loves in the house. Because Cornelius, remember, has seen an angel. This angel has told him, you need to send to Joppa to get Peter who's staying at Simon the Tanner's house, he's got a message for you. So Cornelius sends, the guy's on his way, he assembles everybody he loves, family and friends, and they're all there. Verse 33, you, Peter's going to address them. It's not the warmest uh, greeting. You're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. You know I'm not supposed to be here. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So he's hearkening back to this vision of the sheet. And it's dawning on him, clean and unclean foods really aren't about the foods. It's about the people. And God has his sights set on far more than simply Israel. Verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right, even a devout Roman centurion. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through faith in Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. All the prophets testify about him, so he's talking about the Old Testament, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So he's preaching the gospel. While Peter was still speaking these words, interesting how Matt opened us in prayer this morning, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And there's a second Pentecost. The circumcised believers, that is the Jews who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on 
even the Gentiles, even the uncircumcised in the room, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. To speak in tongues is to speak in an unknown, unlearned language. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the whole household. Then they asked Peter to stay with them a few more days, and I assume he went on to instruct them more about how Christ is the Messiah foretold uh, in the Jewish scriptures and fulfilling uh, all righteousness on our behalf. Powerful story, isn't it? I should mention, incidentally, our next baptism is scheduled for October 23rd. If you've not been baptized, do you see the order of things really clearly here in this passage? Believe on the Lord Jesus and get baptized. Uh, Jesus said that that's a part of the Great Commission. Teach them everything that I have told you and, and baptize them. So if you'd like to be baptized, we'd love to talk to you about it. Contact a staff member and we'll get you baptized. Now, to be fair, Peter wasn't the first to realize that the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles was getting torn down. The kosher food laws were getting removed. He wasn't actually the first uh, to mention it. Jesus was. Mark chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus in his routine teaching uh, talks about how it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out of a man. And parenthetically, Mark helps us understand that means that all things are now, uh, foods are now clean. Well, Peter didn't understand that. They had heard the teaching for sure, but they didn't understand the implications for Jewish believers that they no longer had to live kosher lives, eat kosher meals. So what's our takeaway this morning? Well, the story of Cornelius' conversion is miraculous. It's miraculous at any number of levels. There's a lot we could talk about here. The sheet being let down, the prayer, angelic appearing, the whole household getting baptized, a second, the condescension of the Holy Spirit, and a, a second Pentecost where uh, folks are speaking in unknown, unlearned languages. The unfolding of Gentiles into the people of God. One of the major lessons we learn here is that Israel was not created to observe the food laws, but the food laws were created to mark Israel as holy. In other words, the food laws served the purpose of their day, indicating that Israel was to live a unique life in God's service, setting them apart. Today, however, the people of God are marked by other strange habits, one of which is eating something that's very strange. Whatever our takeaway from reading the food laws of Deuteronomy 14 and, and reading the conversion narrative of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, our takeaway cannot be that we're not a strange people anymore. I think it would be easy for us to look back on Deuteronomy 14 and the kosher food laws and, and wipe our brow thinking, oh, thank goodness we don't have to live like that anymore, sticking out like a sore thumb in all of culture because you don't eat ham. And it's certainly true that Christians don't have to observe the food laws of the Old Testament, but Christians are still culturally strange. Factually speaking, we're still holy. And we're to live holy lives. Now, holiness simply means separated. God is holy. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it's said three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The triplicate in Scripture is given for emphasis. 
so that we, we note just how marked is the difference. The vision that Peter has comes in triplicate, right? Three times the sheep descends. He sees it that way. God is holy. He is simply to say he's set apart for, from us. He's, he's unlike any other of the creatures in the universe. He's holy. We're to be holy. We're to live set-apart lives, distinct from the culture around us, in service to God, not in service to ourselves, and that will make us strange. Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, be holy even as God is holy. Be set apart. Live for His glory. And so we're still to live Strange lives set apart. What does that look like? How do we live holy in our modern era, and what does it have to do with what we eat? Because when Jews ate something unclean, they became unclean. And there were certain uh, purification rites that they had to go through to regain their cleanliness, their status before God is clean, and, and then they could enter into the synagogue or enter into the sacrificial system. Do you know that we actually eat something that marks us as clean and sets us apart and is even, even more strange than the kosher food laws? And we shared in it this morning. We ate the flesh and we drank the blood of Christ. Let me read to you Jesus' teaching on, on his body and blood. It's in John 6, if you want to flip there in your copy, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I'm going to begin in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. All right, so we should go right to Deuteronomy. They're standing at the, the Jordan River. They're about to cross into the Promised Land. For 40 years, they've eaten manna that dropped from the sky, and they just collect it, and it was God's food. And Jesus says here, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I'm the manna of God. I should, I should also point out, they were about to enter the promised land, where the manna would be no more, and they would have to live clean. We don't live in the promised land. We live in the wilderness. So what do we feast on? We feast on the manna provided to us who is Christ. Right? We, we live in a wilderness. Have you watched the news? Have you seen the culture change? We live in a wilderness. We live in a place that it's hard to live by faith in honoring God. Yet there is a life-sustaining presence offered to us. God himself makes himself available. Christ says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh. This is going to get, it's a great text for Halloween. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you. In other words, very truly means this is certain. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And whoever doesn't eat my flesh and doesn't drink my blood doesn't have eternal life. For my flesh is real food. 
my blood real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. There is actually an ongoing eating and drinking so that we can remain in him. Thus the communion celebration. Folks, I'm thankful we don't have to eat kosher. But I'm under no illusion that our eating habits are normal as God's people. I'm telling you, they're strange. In fact, we're told, if you read a little further in John chapter 6, so strange is the diet of Christians that people, at the very moment he's giving this teaching in John 6, they say, oh, I'm out. <laughs> I've taken about all I can have. I can't have any more. This, this man is nuts. He's encouraging cannibalism. In fact, in the early church, the, the early Christians were, in fact, identified, they were thought to be cannibals. They'd get together in their little gatherings in the homes, and they'd talk about this is the body of Christ, and this is the blood of Christ. And in the Roman culture of the first century, they were, ta- they were described as cannibals and persecuted. I wonder if we recognize the gravity of the Lord's Supper, Communion. Or if the way that we receive it, right, it comes to us prepackaged, wrapped in shrink wrap, right, saran wrap, and allergen-free so that we could all, it's very a sterile experience, and it's a micro-meal, it's tiny. How easy it is to forget or miss that we want to remain in Christ and sharing in that meal, depending on, on another man's flesh and blood for life is what we're doing when we celebrate communion. And that makes us strange, strange. There's no getting around it. Odd. I, you know, I've said before, I, and I'll say it again, I, Christians are strange. We're like Noah who built an ark in the desert saying it's going to rain. Sure enough, the rain came. I always told my kids, ark building is strange enough. You don't have to paint your ark pink. My point is, culturally, if you, if you join in the body and the blood of Christ, you're weird. If you're eating the flesh and drinking the blood of another man, you're weird. You don't have to go out of your way to be culturally strange. You are weird. You're saying another man's death provides for us life and then we're feasting on it he says i'm the living bread that came down he's actually providing that real presence to us now it's a sustaining presence that's in the room as we gather where two or more are gathered right christ himself said there i am there's this sustaining reality power that comes from the spirit of christ the holy spirit with us here and now in the wilderness of our world It's interesting to me that Cornelius is described as highly moral, as very devout, gives generously, prays regularly. The angel shows up. He says, hey, God's heard your prayer. He's seen your gifts to the poor. Noted. You are impressive. Again, if you're a highly moral non-Christian, and our county's full of them, 
people that are doing the right thing and trying to be ethical and, and, and try, if you're a highly moral, be encouraged. Your prayers are heard, your gifts, your good deeds are seen by God. God would rather we be highly moral than highly immoral. He appreciates morality. Cornelius, we see that. But there's also a warning here. So loved was Cornelius. So loved are you as a highly moral person that God sent his son to die for you. Do you, do you. do you note this? We've got this highly moral, devout Roman soldier, really competent in his, era, in his area of expertise, and God says it still falls short. He still needs to feast on the flesh and drink the blood of the, other, of, of the perfect man, Christ Jesus. Do you, it's not just the immoral who need Christ. And this county needs to hear that. It's not just the immoral who need Christ. It's not just the younger brother. Do you know that story? Who thumbs his nose that he's dead and says, I'll take my inheritance now and goes lives a hellish life. It's not just the younger boy who needs Christ and the dad waits for him at home with arms open. Folks, it's the highly moral. It's the older brother who needs to come in as well and trust in the Father's provision through Christ. This was my reality growing up. I grew up in a, in a spiritually mismatched home, my mother and father. Mom is a believer, dad not a believer. And he, he, he tried in many respects to, to live a moral life, really accomplished he needed Christ. On his best day, his shining moment, he needed Christ. And so we need to get it out of our heads that he only saves the immoral. Because even the highly moral in our culture fall short and need the body and the blood of Christ. Let me pray for us, and then we'll close in song. Father, you're good to us. Seeing that we on our best day, we fall short. In our best efforts, our most generous moments, in our most devout actions, and you, you see we fall short, and you sent your Son. Would you open our minds and our hearts to it? And then, Father, the strangeness, strangeness that is being your, your child and being holy, called out from this culture. We thank you for the meal reminder we thank you for the meal that makes us clean and that marks us as your kids. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We'll close in song. Adam's down front. He'd love to pray with you. I'll be over here. I'd love to pray with you. Come down front if you want prayer.